said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We'll have a brief moment of silence so that you can search your heart, ask the Lord to examine your heart to prepare you for the preaching of God's word. And after a few moments of silence, I will lead us in a public prayer of confession. Let's pray. come before you this morning as an imperfect and broken people, truly desirous of not only your forgiveness, which you grant so freely, but Father, beyond that measure of forgiveness and that measure of forgetfulness is that ultimate great gift of your love, and as we've just sung, Father, how that love lifts us, even through times of despair after we recognize how we have failed you as David cried out. Lord, we do not want to be hindering the preaching of your word this morning, so we thank you for allowing your Holy Spirit to move in our midst. Father, continue to use your spirit to prick our hearts as we hear your word presented, Father, and as we focus on that great and unfathomable love that you bestowed upon us. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. It's my honor and privilege to present Hobson serves as a pastor of Pocosin Baptist Church in Virginia. He has been pastoring for a number of years. He uh, did his undergraduate work at Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, and then Midwest Seminary out in uh, Memphis, Tennessee area, and then finished his doctorate at Louisville Seminary. In fact, Hobson was born in Louisville when I was working on my degree down there, and so he did full circle and uh, got his doctorate. There. I didn't go that far, so he does require that I call him doctor. Uh, that's the uh, good news. The bad news is every time I get ill and call him doctor, he runs. So I don't know he's sort of that other kind of doctor, but it is truly my joy to introduce my son uh, with regards to preaching God's word. He'll be in Romans chapter 8. So Hopson, you come. Oh, buddy singing. Yeah. That's I what you asked I, me to do. I, yes. Before Hobson comes to sing, everyone's pointing. I did ask, uh, Buddy's got a song that he's sung for us before that does also tie in with the theme of love. So after Buddy sings, which is what I was going to say until I thought I was being motioned over here. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, amen. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> At least I get an amen from Ben. Buddy will share a song about that love, and then Hobson will come preach. Thanks, Buddy. There's no piano. Yeah, he really doesn't want me to sing this morning, does he? There it is. He left the splendor of heaven.
benefits of getting your PhD is that you can read the order of service and you know when they're supposed to sing and when they're not. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, one of the things that you do learn when you are in school for that long is how much you don't know and um, how so often the simplest, most basic truths really matter more than anything. I think sometimes we think that we have to graduate beyond the simple truths like Jesus loves me, this I know. 
Bible tells me so. Uh, but in reality, I think if we can just dive deeper into that, we'll have everything we need. It was said of um, the prolific theologian Karl Barth, who wrote enough volumes to fill several shelves of theology. Towards the end of his life, he was uh, at a, some sort of a lecture, and there was a Q&A time, and someone asked him, can you put all of your theology in a sentence? And he repeated the words of the song that I just said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I, I wonder, what do you think of when you think of God? When you think of God, what do you think? You think of his holiness. You should. He's holy. Do you think of his wrath and judgment towards those who don't believe? You should, because that's a part of what the Bible reveals about God. But do you think of his love? Or if we could flip the question a little bit, what does God think when he thinks of you? I think if we're honest, often we might think that God thinks of us and he thinks, what a disappointment. She's messed up again. He's fallen short again. He hasn't done what he ought to again. can be honest with you to tell you that that is often the sorts of things that I think God thinks when he thinks of me. But what I want you to see this morning is that what God thinks when he thinks of you, if you're in Christ, is love. The children's author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, in her brilliant children's storybook, the Jesus storybook Bible, says this about the way that God feels towards you if your faith is in Christ. She says this, you see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him, and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children yearning for their home. Do you believe, Christian, that God truly loves you, even on your worst days, with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love? We're going to talk about today in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. So you can turn there if you'd like. When my father asked me to preach a few weeks, months ago, it's 2020, so it's hard to keep track of time, right? Uh, I wasn't quite sure what text I wanted to preach, and there were two sermons that I've preached this year to our congregation in Pocosin, Virginia, that I felt like were particularly helpful 
and encouraging to our people in the midst of what's been, for many of us, I don't know about here, but for us, a really hard year. It's been a hard year with a lot of challenges. Even just, just seeing some of the faces behind face masks is a reminder of the, the difficult year that we're going through. And there are two texts that really ministered to our people this year. One was 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, where, where Peter encourages us to set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and the other text was a passage that I had preached at the beginning of the year, Romans chapter 8, 31 to 39. So I, I told my dad, here's the two passages I'm thinking about preaching. And he said, son, I just finished Romans 8, verse 28 to 30 this past Sunday. And I said, okay, and we'll, we'll, we'll tackle the next passage in your study of Romans. So I know you've been walking through this book together, but just because I'm new here, I want to help just real quickly, let's get the lay of the land of where we've been in Romans, where we are in verse 31 of, of chapter 8. If we just started here without getting kind of the context, that would be like watching the, the newest Star Wars film or the newest Marvel movie without seeing anything else in the series, right? It'd be kind of hard to follow the story and what's going on. So what's going on in Romans 8, beginning in verse 31? Well, first of all, you need to know that Romans is a book that's all about righteousness. So chapter 1, we learn that God is righteous, and we learn that God in his righteousness pours out his righteous wrath on unrighteousness. So Romans 1, 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, so that's not necessarily bad news as long as you're righteous. But by the time you get to chapter 2, you learn that Gentiles, which I would imagine is most of us in this room, if not all of us, Gentiles are unrighteous. That's what Paul is trying to get across in Romans chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 20. And then he says, this would surprise his readers, Jewish people are also unrighteous. Everybody is unrighteous. So Romans 3, 10 to 12, he says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. So just in chapters 1 to 3, you learn that God is righteous. God is pouring out his wrath on the unrighteous. And all of us are unrighteous. It's a pretty depressing start to the book of Romans. But it's true. By the time you get to chapter 3, the middle of chapter 3, we learn this in verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness 
at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's what he's saying. God is righteous. He pours out his wrath on the unrighteous. All of us are unrighteous, but God in his love and kindness sends his son, Jesus, the Christ, to live a righteous life and die a death in the place of all of us who are unrighteous. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, when you receive that gift righteousness that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you will live differently. So chapter 6, when you have this righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, you are freed from the power of sin. Chapter 7, if you have this righteousness, you are freed from the power of the law to condemn you. And then chapter 8, verses 1 to 30, receiving this righteousness by grace through faith alone in Christ alone frees you to live in the power of the Spirit. So by the time you get to verse 31, Romans 8, 31, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? He's talking about everything he's already said in the book up to this point. In other words, how should we respond to all of this? That there would be a God who's righteous and yet would send his son to die in our place and rise from the dead. How do you respond to all of this? What are we supposed to make of this? And Paul, in our text this morning, asks five rhetorical questions. Five rhetorical questions. And in answering those questions, we will see, with God's help, five staggering dimensions of God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love for his people. Now, I'm confident of this. No matter how long you've been a Christian in this room, you do not yet, as fully as you should, understand the depth of God's love for you. Whether you've been walking with Jesus for five years or 50 years, he loves you more than you think. I want to show you just a tiny glimpse of that this morning. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, every single promise in our text this morning applies to you, even if this is the worst day of your life. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, none of this applies to you. Unless you will today give your life to this Jesus. So five dimensions of God's love for you. So what we'll see in our passage this morning. First of all, God loves us with a prevailing love. With a love that prevails. A love that wins. Look at verse 31, where we see the first rhetorical question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the first question. If God is for you, Christian, who can be against you? That's a rhetorical question. We're supposed to know the answer. What's the answer? Who can be against Christians? Nobody is what Paul is saying. 
Nobody can be against you if God is on your side. Now, if we're really thinking carefully, we ought to be saying, really, Paul? Nobody can be against us? On December 26th of last year, the Islamic State released a video claiming to show the execution of 11 Christians in northeast Nigeria. At one point in the video, a masked man looked at the camera and he said, this is a message to Christians all over the world. Really, Paul? Nobody can be against us? Obviously, that's, a, that's an extreme example, isn't it? Well, last August, here at home in the United States, a professor named George Yancey at Baylor University, who studies uh, and teaches sociology, and he did a massive report about anti-Christian bias in the United States of America. He surveyed a group of progressives and activists to determine their views on Christians. Here's what some of them said about people like you and me. Kill them all. Let their God sort them out. Here in the United States of America, about Christians. A torturous death would be too good for them. Be too good for you, they said. One said, I'd be a bit giddy, certainly grateful, if everyone who saw himself or herself as a Christian were snatched permanently from our societal peripheries, whether by holocaust or by rapture or by plague. Another one said, I am only too well aware of their horrific attitudes and beliefs, and those are enough to make me see them as subhuman. That's what leading progressive activists, many of them believe about Christians. So again, really, Paul? Nobody can be against us? Those are just people. What about your own sinful flesh? What about Satan and his minions? What about death itself? We have, as a church in Virginia, buried three precious saints this year. None of them to coronavirus, but to different ailments. Just, just two weeks ago, we, we had two funerals in the span of a week. Death itself is against us. Paul, what do you mean? How is it that nobody can be against us? Paul, are you naive? If you know anything about Paul, you know that he's not naive. Later on in, the, in our text, he's going to talk about tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword and slaughter. None of these things are hypothetical to the Apostle Paul. He's dealt with each of those things personally. So what does he mean that nobody is against us? Here's what he says. He said he doesn't mean that you and I will not have any enemies. What he's saying is, in the end, none of our enemies will win. That's what he's saying. If God is for us, who can be against us? There's lots of people against us today, but on the final day, when the dust settles and everything is over, none of your enemies will prevail. Only Christ. That's what he's saying. 
He loves you with a prevailing love, a love that wins. Or as Martin Luther wrote, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed the truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The word of Jesus. Jesus wins. Often in our culture, Christians are accused of being on the wrong side of history. That might be true if we talk about the history that is written by man. But history will end and God will continue to settle accounts. And on the end, only those who are in Christ are on the right side of history. So, dear Christian, God loves you with a love that prevails. A love that wins. Number two, you might be thinking, how can I be sure that God loves me that way? I don't feel like he loves me that way, with a love that wins. I feel like everything else is winning. Paul, with a second rhetorical question, shows us that God loves us with a providing love. God loves us with a providing love. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's another rhetorical question. Here's the question. Will God give us all things? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. He will give us all things. He will give us everything that we need. And again, if you're thinking clearly, you might be tempted to say, really, Paul? I don't feel like God is giving me all things. I don't feel like he's giving me all the things that I need. I don't know most of you in this room. I don't know any of you that well except for my family here. But my guess is there's not a person in this room that doesn't feel like there's something that you need that God hasn't given you. He hasn't provided a husband or a wife. Or maybe you feel like you have the wrong husband or wife. Don't say amen there. Really, Paul? God will give me all things? Or maybe he hasn't provided you a child. Or you feel like he's provided you the wrong child. Really, Paul? God will give us all things? He hasn't provided you a job. Or you feel like he's provided you the wrong job. Or he hasn't provided you a certain skill or ability or body type or, or something that you desire. Or he hasn't provided healing for you or for someone that you love. He hasn't provided what you believe you need financially. Really, Paul? God will provide us all things? How is this possible? How can Paul say that God will give us all things? Let me ask you a question. What is your greatest 
not a new car. It's not a relationship. It's not money. It's not physical healing. What is your greatest need? Salvation. Or if you're thinking about Paul's logic in the book of Romans, your greatest need is righteousness. You're going to be in a relationship with God. You need to be righteous. That's your greatest need. Has God given you what you need to have that? Yes. And and what is the greatest thing that God could ever give you? Himself. Has he given you himself? Look at verse 32. Notice what he says. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God didn't hold back his greatest gift for you, why would he hold back anything lesser that you need? Think of it this way. Um, There was a wealthy Roman who had a son, who broke his heart, and he had a slave that he loved. So on this man's deathbed, he decided he was going to disinherit his son, and he was going to leave everything to his slave, Marcellus. So he calls his son into the room. He drew up, drawn up the papers. Everything was official. He calls his son into his room, and he says, all right, son, because you have so desperately disappointed me. I am disinheriting you. I'm leaving everything I own to my slave, Marcellus. But because I do love you, even though you've been a disappointment to me, I will give you one item out of my possessions. You can have one thing. Marcellus gets everything else. And so the son said, then I will take Marcellus. And if I have Marcellus, then I have what? Everything. You understand? Christian, if God gives you Christ, you have everything. Everything. We are like that undeserving son. And God freely, gladly, joyfully gives you Christ. And in receiving Christ, Christ, you have everything. So here's what this means practically. If God has given you Jesus, you will never in your life encounter a need that God won't supply. And notice what I said. You will never encounter what? A want, a need. Which means... All the things that you think you need that you don't have, you don't need. And God knows you well enough to know that you don't need it. This should revolutionize the way we approach God in prayer. Um, Imagine you have a wealthy friend who owns a beautiful beach house somewhere in Tahiti. And out of the blue one day, he sends you a text message and he says, listen, I'm going to let you stay for a month at my beach house in Tahiti. Totally free. You just get there and it's yours. Gives you the keys. So you book your plane to Tahiti and there you are 
and, you, and you, you pull into the driveway of this majestic beach house, and it's got a dozen bedrooms. It's got a, a you know, it's got a, a, a TV, a big theater system inside the house. It's got a billiards room, heated pools, heated hot tubs. It's got everything you could ever want or imagine, and it's totally yours for a month. Now, if you walk into that house, and you notice in this beautiful, sprawling kitchen, a refrigerator, would you text your friend and say, is it okay if I put my food in the refrigerator? Would you go in the restroom and say, is it okay if I use your toilet paper? Would you ask him, is it okay if I swim in the pool or the hot tub? You wouldn't do any of that. Why? Because he's already given you the house. And if he's given you this big thing, why would he say no to all the little things, right? Do you not see what God has done for us in Christ in giving us the biggest, best, most amazing thing that he ever could? All the little things that we ask for, if it's for our good, he will freely and gladly give them to us. This is not prosperity theology. This isn't saying that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It is saying that God loves you, and he will not withhold from you anything that you need. That is incredibly good news. God loves you with a providing love. Number three. God loves us with a perfection love. God loves us with a perfection love. Perhaps you're hearing about this love. And you say, well, I, I don't deserve it. I, I'm not lovable. How could God really love me this way? Verse 33, there's a third rhetorical question. And Paul asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. <clears throat> Excuse me. So here's the rhetorical question. Who can bring any charge? Another way to put that would be to say, who can accuse God's people? Who can accuse God's people? That's the rhetorical question. What's the answer? Nobody. Nobody can accuse God's people. And again, we ought to say, really, Paul? Nobody can accuse us. People accuse us all the time. What, what about when you're accused by Satan? He's called the great accuser. Or his demons. Remind, reminded of the, the dark sins in your past before you came to Christ. Things that you've tried to forget. Or, or what's worse, things that you sometimes miss. It's not really his. The accuser whispers. He doesn't really love you really love him, would you do that? He whispers in his heart. Really, Paul? Nobody can accuse God's people? What about when you're accused by your own conscience, confronted with yet another failure as a Christian? Maybe you made a New Year's resolution at the begin, beginning of 2020. I'm going to read my Bible every day, or I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year, and then you got shipwrecked on the shores of Leviticus. And somewhere at the end of January or February, you gave up, and you haven't really picked it back up again. Or, or maybe you, you fell asleep in the prayer time again. 
or you slept in and you, you missed Sunday school, or you allowed that conversation to turn into gossip again, or you went too far with your boyfriend or your girlfriend again, or you went to that website again, or you drank too much again, or you're a miserable failure of a Christian who can't seem to get his act together, and you say, really, Paul, nobody can accuse me? I can accuse myself. But what about when you're accused by somebody else? Whether you deserve it or not. When your coworkers call you out for saying a word that Christians aren't supposed to say. Or when your mom or dad points out another failure. Or when your husband or wife ex exposes your failures in marriage. Or when the culture accuses you of being a bigot or backwards. Really, Paul? Nobody can accuse us? How can Paul say that nobody can bring a charge, an accusation, against God's elect. Paul is not saying that people never accuse us. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that none of those accusations will stick. Like water off a duck's back. All of them will fall to the ground. Why? Because it is God who justifies. What does that mean? God declares you righteous if your faith is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. For those whose faith is in Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, he was being punished for your sin. And all of Jesus' righteousness, 33 years, never a lustful thought. Never a lie. Never disobedient. Never dishonored his parents. 33 years on this earth resisting temptation that you and I couldn't even imagine. All of that righteousness is given to you if your faith is in Christ. So who can bring any charge against God's elect if God looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Jesus? None of it can stick. Accuse me all day. It doesn't matter. God sees me and sees Christ if my faith is in him. Charles Spurgeon said this, Christ did not love you for your good works. They were not the cause of his beginning to love you. So he does not love you for your good works even now. They are not the cause of his continuing to love you. Get this. He loves you, Spurgeon writes, because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. God loves you. As glorious as this love is, fourth rhetorical question shows us that God loves us with a purchasing love. There was a price that was paid to love you this way. Notice verse 34. Who is to condemn? There's that fourth rhetorical question. Who can condemn God's people? And, and Paul answers, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who can condemn you if your faith is in Jesus? Who can condemn you? And the answer is nobody. Nobody. In the Middle Ages, the doctrine of penance was invented in Christian churches because many believed that they had to pay God back when they committed sin as his followers. Now, most of us here, this is a Baptist church, most of us Baptists would say we don't believe in penance. We don't believe we have to pay God back for our sin. And yet, even though we don't believe it intellectually, if we're honest, many of us believe it functionally in our hearts. When you, str- when you suffer, how many of you are tempted to think, I must have done something wrong, and God is punishing me? When you sin, how many of you think, I can't go to God right now. I messed up too bad. I need to suffer a little bit and feel bad for a little bit before I can I need to prove myself before I can pray. Paul, listen to what he's saying. When he says, who can condemn? Who is to condemn? What he's saying is, nobody's condemnation matters but God's. And if your faith is in Jesus, all of God's condemnation was poured out on Christ in your place. That's why Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is not an ounce of condemnation left for you, Christian. You're here in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus. All of God's condemnation rests on you until you repent and believe. Right now, he is not your friend, he is your enemy. But he is a loving enemy who even now invites you to come to him. But if your faith is in Christ, there is no condemnation for you because Jesus paid your penalty. Sometimes certain vendors will take advantage of customers with dementia or Alzheimer's or some other mental disability by collecting cash for a product or a service. And then when the, when the purchaser forgets that they've paid, they collect money again. Right? You've heard these sorts of stories before, haven't you? Can I suggest to you, God is not a shady vendor. He will not require payment twice for the same thing. If all of your sin was paid for at the cross. There's nothing left for you to pay. What, is that? what does the hymn say? Jesus paid what? It all. Every single ounce was paid at the cross. God loves you with a perfectly love. The hymn writer Augustus Toplady, most famous for his hymn, Rock of Ages, wrote this in another hymn. From whence this fear and unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? 
And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which the Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid whatever thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If you have my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then my soul unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God. Why? Since Jesus died for thee. You're like me. You might be thinking, you know, I think every single one of us has an inner attorney in our head, right? And this attorney is always bringing up legal arguments against the promises in God's word. And your inner attorney is probably thinking, if it's like mine, what if I mess it up? This is amazing. This is amazing love. But I know me. And if anybody can mess it up, I could. What if somehow some way I fall out of God's love. Verse 35 gives us a fifth rhetorical question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And here we see that God loves us with a persevering love. Who can separate you from God's love? What's the answer? Nobody. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, one of Ray Ortland's sons tells the story of walking his son into a zero-entry swimming pool, and they're holding hands, and his little boy is holding his daddy's hand because the water is scary. And at first, this little boy is holding tight to his dad's hand. But as they get deeper and deeper into the pool, Guess who's holding on tighter? His father. And even if, in a moment, his son is somehow loosening his grip on his father's hand, guess whose grip is tighter? Christian, you are not kept by your ability to hold on to God, but by his ability to hold on to you. He loves you with a persevering love. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Look at verse 35, the, the second part of it. He, he, Paul gives us this big list of stuff. Tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul puts this big list of stuff and he says, none of it can separate you from his love. Maybe you 
focus on that ver- that word in verse 37, him who loved us. And you might think, aha, love, passion. You used to love me, but not anymore. Not the way I've lived. Not after the things I've thought or done or said. He loved me. not what Paul means when he puts it in the past tense. When Paul puts it in the past tense there, what he's trying to do, he's trying to show you, even though he loves you still, his love is so sure and definite, it's as if it's already happened and never can be taken away from you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Perhaps you again, I I think it's the simplest truths that we often forget. One of the things that has has been very helpful for our congregation in Virginia with our trials that we've gone through this year has been been the words of a children's book. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. It's called The Moon is Always Round by Jonathan Gibson. I'm going to read you from this book written from the perspective of a little boy as he and his family walk through a trial. Listen to what the book says. When I look up on a sunny day, the sky is blue and bright, and jet planes paint white lines on its canvas. When I look up on a stormy day, the sky is gray and dull, and clouds pour rain and flash and boom with lightning and thunder. When I look up on a summer's evening, The sky is red and orange and purpley pink, and the sun looks like it's falling from the sky on fire. When I look on on a clear night, the sky is dark, and the stars twinkle and sparkle like diamonds. But the moon isn't always round. Dad said, the moon is always round, even when you can't see all of it. When Dad told me I was getting a little sister, The moon looked like a banana. But Dad said the moon is always round. When the crib was put together, the moon looked like a slice of apple. But Dad said the moon is always round. When Mommy's tummy began to look like a watermelon, the moon looked like a shriveled orange. But Dad said the moon is always round. Even when I was told, that my little sister wasn't coming to live with us after all of the waiting. Dad said the moon is always round. When my parents left me in the middle of the night for the hospital and the next morning I went off to preschool, I thought, will the moon be round today? Dad said the moon is always round. When I waited at the hospital to meet my little sister and we left without her, I asked, why, Dad? And he replied, I don't know why, but the moon is always round. 
when we got home from the hospital, I looked for the moon before dad, before bed. It was a half moon. But dad said, the moon is always round. And when it was still just the three of us, and we went to church to say goodbye, my dad asked, what shape is the moon? I said, the moon is always round. And dad said, what does that mean? face now, what trials you have faced, what trials await you, but I know this, the moon is always round even when you can't see it, and God is always there, and he always loves you, even when it doesn't feel like it, he loves you with a persevering love, what can separate you from his love if your faith is in Christ. Nothing. In fact, the worst thing that could happen to you to close your eyes in death will only allow you to be in the presence of the one who loves you. It's incredible. room and you're not a follower of Jesus, as I said before, at this point, God is your enemy, but he is a loving enemy, and he delights in drawing sinners to himself. Today, you can trust him and be welcome in to this incredible, amazing, never stopping, always and forever. Father, we thank you for sending us Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for loving us. God, I pray for each person in this room that claims the name of Jesus, that we would not stop growing in our understanding of the depths of your love for us. God, you, your love for us is so simple that a child can understand it, and yet so deep that all the PhDs in the world could spend their entire lives trying to study its depths and not even scratch the surface. God, eternity awaits for us, your people, to grow eternally in our understanding of your love for us. So help us now to love others as you have loved us. Help us to share this love with those that we know. Thanksgiving approaches and opportunities to be with friends and family that maybe we're not with very often. Give us courage and strength and opportunity to share this love with them. And God, we pray that you, that you would hold us fast, that you would hold us tight, even when we lose our grip. We thank you that you will not let us go and nothing can separate us from your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.